Welcome, welcome. We are back with part two of Surveillance Capitalism. I actually got the name of the fucking book wrong. It's actually called The Age of Surveillance Capitalism. So that's a little embarrassing, Damn. but whatever. Well, <laughs> just pretend that we said that in the first episode. Yeah, every time I said that, just just add those three words in front of it. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> well, apparently there's a documentary on YouTube about it as well, an interview with the author. So I'm sure that's good. Check that out if you are like, I don't want to read a 600-page book, which I don't fucking blame you. Yeah. Another option, though, is to listen to this podcast. Yeah, we're, we're sort <laughs> of, you know, it is like two-something hours of us, but like that's probably shorter than a long book. Definitely. I, I spent like two months on this book. <laughs> there you go. Okay, so we are going to jump back in with a little tale from 2016. You know, some, some crazy times. But one of the mm, seemingly bright pockets of that time was a little game called Pokemon Go. Just splice in a clip here of uh, candidate Clinton saying, <laughs> Pokemon Go to go the polls. I fucking love that so much. Oh, heady times. Uh, anyway, so it turns out Pokemon Go is actually a really good example of what we're going to be talking about in this second part of this series, which is the idea of herding. Pokemon Go was actually developed. Uh, you remember that guy, uh, Hank, from the CIA startup and also former Google employee? He was the guy who started Niantic Labs to develop games using parallel reality. And Niantic, of course, they, they had a, a first game that was fairly similar, but, you know, Pokemon Go was their big hit. So, CIA connecting to Pikachu, not as far as you'd think. <laughs> <laughs> Damn, all right. Yeah, Pikachu is an op. <laughs> Oof. Yeah. So, the idea behind Pokemon Go, if you never had the pleasure... I didn't like it because of my Pokemon philosophy, but that's another story, <laughs> was uh, you you walk around and you, you see little critters on your phone, little Pokemons, and you throw balls at them and you catch them. It was fun. Everyone really got into it. You know, there were all these stories, and, and I saw it as well because I lived downtown at the time. Um, people were out there and, and playing a game together, and in a way it felt very wholesome and nice of like, wow, look, we're connecting over a thing. And it was in that way. I think it was. But the kind of thing going on behind the curtain was this was a huge opportunity for Niantic uh, because they were getting tons of data to continue mapping more spaces. And because of the popularity of the game, uh, you had it started out small, you know, just like a coffee shop would be like, oh, let's do a Pokemon special, you know, like here's a Pokemon latte and let's like you get, you know, free in-game currency or something if you come here. And Niantic was like, oh, that's great. And so they started partnering with businesses to become like Pokestops and stuff to increase foot traffic, paying per visit, basically. Huh. So you had like bigger corporations like McDonald's and stuff doing this yeah. kind of stuff. Interesting. And nefarious, probably. A little bit, yeah, because they ended up using way more permissions than they needed. Uh, they actually got in trouble with the Electronic Privacy Information Center, and U.S. Senator Al Franken uh, called them out on this as well for gathering more information from users than they actually needed. The real breakthrough here was the idea of using location as a way to drive business and as a way to 
cut deals with businesses and to like basically encourage people's real life actions to be influenced by tech. And yeah, I mean, (laughs) the data they got was definitely used to better serve those motivations of like, okay, how can we convince people to go to more of these pokey stops so that businesses will pay us more and things like that. So the idea of location is like really the, the name of the game here. Essentially the attraction in this form of the technology was we can see real time our effect on being able to get people from place to place with advertising and with gimmicks and stuff like that. Yeah. So if you recall in the previous episode, the formula was kind of like, okay, we're getting data about people so we, that we can show certain ads to, you know, the correct people, right? It was about finding your audience. And this was more about modifying your audience and getting them to change their behavior. So the idea of this is basically behavioral modification. And we'll talk about the different kinds of it and kind of the tech behind it as well as the philosophy behind it. But this, I think, is a good first example just because it's like so well known of like, yeah, we want people to go certain places and spend money and we want to profit off of that. So uh, have you heard of this term called the Internet of Things? Yes. Okay. What do you think it means? Um, it's like all your Wi-Fi connected toasters and, you know, Apple watches and everything that's <laughs> so connect <laughs> Wi-Fi, Bluetooth, whatever you got, all of how it links together and communicates with each other, shares data with each other. Um, that sort of totally. thing. Totally. Uh, another term for it is ubiquitous computing. Basically the internet's going to be everywhere one day, not just a phone, not just a browser. It'll be in everyday things from, you know, rooms and smart houses to clothes and fabrics. And this kind of has its roots in pretty early tech, Uh, actually, surprisingly, biology. In 1964, uh, there was an expedition to the Galapagos Islands. uh, And a scientist there, R. Stuart McKay, was dabbling in what's called telemetry. Now, I apparently like, I knew but didn't know what this word meant. It was something I had mm-hmm. heard a lot, like in the tech world, and I'd heard it in uh, Star Trek. <laughs> but like they'll be like, "Can we get, can we get yeah, telemetry, telemetry on that yeah. probe?" And I'm like, "What the fuck is that?" All it is is gathering data from far away, so a long distance transmission of some sort. Um, you may have also heard the her- term telematics. That's the same root. It's, it means the same thing. It's just cool sound. It's a different. So way I guess of cool telemetry sounding. is the act of gathering, and telematics is like what you do with that maybe i'm not sure what the distinction is the study of like like statistics it sounds kind of like or mathematics you know yeah so this scientist he was like the expert about this he he was observing these animals and he wanted to implement wearable technology to capture behavior in natural habitats without the animal knowing about it so they wouldn't disturb the animal And he wanted to do this to be able to observe like huge sets of data of like entire animal populations. He was even this early on uh, pushing for going beyond just observation, which I find really surprising. I'm like, you're a fucking scientist. What are you doing? But he's like, oh, we could like try to modify their behavior and like help them do better. And I'm like, I feel like turtles know how to be turtles, but okay. (laughs) But anyway, fittingly, the people who picked up these techniques, surveillance capitalism, said, you know who's kind of like a bunch of herds of animals? 
<laughs> me, this guy. Mm-hmm. That's what they set out to do. Uh, this It has the idea of controlling populations or manipulating populations, observing populations, was extremely exciting to these fucks. So we're going to look at some different types of behavior modification. One is called tuning. Uh, that's just kind of a gentle nudge to change someone's behavior. You can think of this as a lot of the principles of design do this kind of stuff. You know, you make the button that you want people to click like more prominent than the button you don't want people to click. You want users to make a certain choice. So, you know, you use hierarchy, you use layout, you lead their eye certain places. It's always uh, accept all, bright blue, reject all or cancel in like gray the same mm-hmm. or whatever the same color is as the background <laughs> yes just tiny at the bottom maybe you hide it under the scroll like there's lots of ways to my to favorite version of this is with not that. with cookies but it's like when you go to a recipe site or something or like a how-to site and it's like put your email in to be the best motherfucking handyman ever and then the no thank is like no thanks i want to be a chump or something yes, like it's, it's always those. like no thanks i suck complete like i'm awful i'm the worst i don't want a free offer (laughs) (laughs) yeah i'm content with being a loser for the rest of my life i mean writers had to write that and they had to think (laughs) about how do we you know pressure people into this a b testing is another example of this if you work in tech or design you've probably had to deal with this but uh, it's taken on a massive role in the industry uh basically continuous experimentation you know showing users this version of the homepage versus this one and which one gets and we're talking tiny percentage points like i don't know like <laughs> oh there was a three percent click-through rate increase it's in and it's like that could have been nothing but okay <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it's very annoying as a designer when it's like, that one looks like dog shit, but I guess it performed slightly better. So fine. <laughs> and the metrics of this are just, did they get it? Do you get it to do what you want it to do? Do you get it to do something different? Like what's, you know, what's the goal, I guess, of that? It depends on the design choice. Yeah, it depends on on what they're trying to push. Uh, like, for instance, a lot of companies will try to de-emphasize the phone number in or contact information because they are usually already swamped with calls and they don't want any more of that. And they're robots when you do call. (laughs) Or AI, no, they're just... Yeah, I mean, they they are more likely to push a a chat function. Like, so that would be a great example of A-B testing of like, okay, where can we place this chat button so that it's very prominent and people are more likely to click that than the call button. Mm -hmm. Another kind of modification is called herding. Um, So this is trying to dissuade someone from doing something, basically trying to change the situation to lead to a different choice. An example of this was given, I think we talked about it last time. What if when someone is delinquent on a car payment, you can shut down the car? That's an example of hurting because you were immediately saying, nope, we're not doing this. Yeah. Just shut that off. I mean, like maybe they're traveling (laughs) across country, whatever. Who cares? Yeah, maybe they're trying to get their kid to the hospital or something it doesn't matter no it's the car is off now yeah and probably the most well-known version of this is conditioning you know pavlov's dogs um or bf skinner's work which will come back to him but the idea of reinforcing behaviors with either positive or negative reinforcement and getting people to do what you want so that would include like day streaks and stuff like uh oh you signed into the app you know, for five, you keep 
going for five days, you'll get a better reward every time or. Yeah, gamification is a huge thing. Uh, (laughs) If you've ever worked in tech, you have heard it and you've heard people try to gamify the stupidest things. So yeah, (laughs) it's a thing. (laughs) It's, I guess, I don't know. I think I'm fairly resistant to that. It's like hard to get me to care about the gamification of like actual games. Like, oh, (laughs) sign into this game. This I'm like, I don't care. I I didn't want to. Who cares? Yeah. Some examples of telematics, uh, auto insurers are definitely getting into this. Um, they're doing something called behavioral underwriting. And this is analyzing risks by monitoring behavior in real time to reduce the company's risk. So a lot of companies, pretty much all the major insurance companies do this at this point. They have a program where they can track your, you know, whether or not you're wearing a seatbelt, if you're speeding, yeah, how hard you're braking, how you're cornering, accelerating, driving time, if you're going out of state, all kinds of stuff. But the goal here is to basically understand like, okay, how risky of a driver are you actually, instead of just using kind of like the standard demographics, like we've all heard like, oh, a red sports car is going to be really expensive to insure because people who get that are riskier drivers. Yeah. So instead of just relying on that kind of data, they're going to say, well, let's actually find out what kind of driver you are. And they'll try to sell it to you of like, oh, if you're a good driver, you're going to pay less. But it's like, "Mm, if you're not, like, (laughs) that's not going to work out for you. All right. So listeners, a little bit of inside baseball here. But um, (laughs) this explains the vast majority of fucking slow pokes and <laughs> geezers and all the rest not to be ageist i mean y'all you know you're oldies y'all can drive fairly fast sometimes but i am a lead foot so mm-hmm. i'm always saying like what does this guy do man like when he plugs something into google maps does he add 15 minutes to it and they say well that's what i'm gonna get there because <laughs> turns out he's just you know he's got one of these trackers here for he his. might he might <laughs> But yeah, so the, the goal here is, is about shaping behavior. It's trying to almost gamify driving to get customers to improve and to save them money, but also really save the insurer money. And on top of that, it's about selling their data to third parties so they know who to advertise to. A lot of these programs have some sort of reward system or something like that of like, oh, get a coupon at Panera or whatever. <laughs> but it's also just so they can like get more advertisers. So they would say, sign up for the thing, discount your insurance and stuff if you're good, but also you'll be in the rewards program where you give, we give you things. They could even say, we'll give you things based on like where you like to go or something. Totally. They totally do that shit. Damn. All right. So they track (laughs) you, they figure out what ads to sell information to people to figure out what ads to give you because you like these places. All of these processes are about automating things that we've already done before, which you may say like, cool, automation can be great and a time saver. In the case of insurance, you're automating the previous process of underwriting into a an algorithm that tells you how much to charge and when to raise their, their rates and things like that. And if you recall the example of the shutting off the car, mm-hmm. <laughs> that example was actually given by a Google economist, uh, Hal Varian, which just like sounds like an evil name. Um, <laughs> yeah, I would come up with that shit at the D&D table. Yeah, totally. Salvarian. <laughs> and yeah, like that example of if someone stops paying their car payments, just remotely make the car not start and ping its location for repossession. The whole idea here is we're trying to automate processes uh, in order to leave out those pesky human relationships that cut slack. 
They cut slack. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like that are that are empathetic to let things slide. <laughs> empathy. Yeah, because we've talked about this on the show before of the like the automated rent system of like landlords are like, well, basically we wouldn't be this assholey to people. Like we wouldn't think to charge them this much because that's kind of a dick move. But yeah, but that's but what people have it. told me to charge. Yeah. Oh, and the car not starting thing is actually a real company. So fuck you, Loan Plus Collateral Management System. Yeah, I mean, I didn't need a lot of convincing to, to be against that <laughs> name of a company. <laughs> yeah, right. That, those are like all my least favorite words bundled up. You just need if to add like, like racist capitalist. Loan, yeah. <laughs> the KKK's Collateral yeah. Management System. Like, oh, yeah. For, yeah, or in that vein, the IDF. Like, yeah, right. <laughs> Basically, a lot of this tech is relying on algorithms to remove opportunities for human connection and empathy. Like there's a story in the book about, you know, a couple whose car was going to get repossessed and and someone comes down to talk to them and realizes like, oh, they're like really fucking struggling. And like he talks to his manager and they get him an extension and they and like they end up um, like the story kind of goes viral. And so people end up raising money for this like elderly couple who is like really in trouble. And like that kind of stuff can't happen if you have just mathed it out of existence. <laughs> yeah. Now I do have a question before we move to the next, because I feel like we're transitioning almost. Yes. What are some ways in which you can use this tech or is it possible? Or is this some, maybe an example of bad tech um, that you can use this to automate processes and stuff and yeah maybe cut down on the human element in a good way like Mm. in a way that would benefit like if it were in in the hands of the commune how could we actually like do good shit with this or is it maybe an example of like stuff forces we need not meddle with you know i think that's a good question so we've talked before about how ai and algorithms are inherently flawed because they are made by inherently flawed people Uh, There's been a lot written about the racism involved in things like facial recognition programs, in things like AI, in in generating images. Um, I heard a story of a colleague trying to create an image, and they couldn't put a black person in a coffee shop. It just wouldn't work. (laughs) They're like, I guess black people don't drink coffee? Like, what is happening? No, I've never had experience with that before. (laughs) Can't happen. And, And so I think... It's possible, but I think until like the world of tech is kind of broken up a bit. I mean, the the book talks about this as well as that um, it's become such a uh, secluded world where like there's actually a, a shortage of, of professors because they're like, why would I fucking teach when I can go make a bajillion dollars, you know? <laughs> and so you yeah. have this real gap, this real knowledge gap, this real seclusion it's it's you know referred to as a priesthood many times in the book which is kind of hilarious but interesting yeah (laughs) so i think until that world is opened up more and is not being used for profit like if it is in the hands of communes then maybe it can be used for good but i think i don't know i'm very skeptical of it because i'm trying to think like in a communist sense like what would we want to automate but to me that just I, I don't know. I guess I would worry about it. Like, okay, maybe I could see us tracking food purchases at, or, you know, food pickups at the food depot. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so we know, okay, there's, here's the demand for certain kinds of foods. Maybe we should produce more X, Y, Z. So like a, like a cyber sin situation, like the Chilean computer system mm-hmm. that they had and everything basically 
trying to computerize the old province by province like uh, feedback systems on a this is our actual demand this is what we should apply, supply which we're all taught always taught like that's impossible like you can mm-hmm. never compute all <laughs> these things so just leave it up to the market but like what do you think Amazon's doing like what do you think Walmart is doing they're constantly calculating this shit yes. to figure out how much they need to supply we, j- we can just do that like on a big scale I mean, like you can see examples of it now being used in the capital sense, exactly like those companies or like I went to the airport and did one of those creepy. Have you ever done these? These uh, cashierless, not just like a, a self-checkout situation. Mm-mm. It's like you scan a card to go in. Have you no, tried I've never that? Done that? I've read about them, but I did it just because it was the closest thing to my gate and I was hungry and it was really weird. Like you scan a card and the little turnstile opens, uh, you scan just like your credit card and mm-hmm. then you grab what you want and just leave. <laughs> it's yeah. really weird. I'm just like, I don't, this is like some advanced like RFID tracking, I guess. So you know what it is I grabbed and how many and everything, but okay. But like, yeah. what if we did that, but without the paying for it? <laughs> See, the trick there is to develop your throwing skills, like become a quarterback or something. And then you go in there with some rich guy, right? Mm-hmm. He doesn't know. He, you're just tailing him, right? Mm-hmm. And you get your shit and then you like just while he's going through. <laughs> yeah. And then you just go pick up a shit afterward and he paid for it. It's great. Sounds great. Yeah. So in the commune, we're all going to be quarterbacks. <laughs> <laughs> or you could like pickpocket and reverse pickpocket. We could figure oh, it out. Oh, yes. Bring back our Skyrim skills here. <laughs> okay. Uh, moving on to location tracking, probably the most common way we are tracked. And it's something that can tell you a whole heck of a lot about who people are. Um, I mean, I even get creeped out on Star Trek when they're like, computer, where's so-and-so? I'm like, what if they're like having an affair? <laughs> <laughs> they're like, yeah, they're sneaking... <laughs> food in the commissary or something yeah there. they're in like ensign hot tits as quarters and you're yeah. like god damn it <laughs> not again <laughs> yeah they're in the uh, holodeck you know what they're doing you know it is triple locked <laughs> so with location tracking uh one thing that is really common is something called geofencing this is designating a specific geographic area to send alerts to smartphones so this can be anything from you are ordering pickup from a restaurant, you get close to the restaurant and it says like, hey, like just, you know, they give you a status update on your order. Yeah, Chick-fil-A does this. They're like, oh, we're not going to or you know, make it till you show up. And then it's like, it doesn't look like you're here yet. Yes. You know. But it also works in, in an advertising sense. You know, you walk into a McDonald's and there's a prompt to download the McDonald's app. The whole idea, like, yeah, can be used for convenience for sure, but can also be used to tap into the compulsive nature of impulse buys. Um, You know, you walk in, you say, oh, if I get this app, I get a coupon or a discount or whatever. There's also something which is terrifyingly named life pattern marketing. Okay. Uh, This term comes from a mobile marketing firm, uh, which wants companies to create these, uh, which is basically assembling daily behavior of a quote person of interest to predict future behavior like a <laughs> like a crime profile no just like people that you want to sell shit to oh like a consumer profile mhm mhm so kind of okay. like what we talked about, about 
last time with the user profile information, mm-hmm. this is like just a more enhanced version of that based on location of saying, okay, well, you know, they get up every day, they stop and get breakfast and they go to work and then they, you know, run errands and they come home. What are the touch points there that we can advertise to? So this is, I, I, I keep trying to go back to the good version of this. And again, it's just kind <laughs> of like... Can find any good? Yeah. So in this case, it is like, again, measuring what do people want Let's provide that for them. I think the dark side of the capitalist version of it, of course, is that it's like parasitic instead. It's not like, how can I help? It's not a, that's one of the big sci-fi dreams of artificial intelligence and stuff is it's going to be this assistant that helps make things easier for you and provides you with what you need. But when it's in its vampiric capitalist version of itself, it's, it's, it just is actually like, how can I make them consume more? How can I bleed them? How can I, you know, how can they serve my purposes instead of the other way around? Uh, yeah, I think I struggle with the idea of like even, I don't know, a lot of this tech can come from a place of trying to help. Like we'll see some later in the the emotional section. But yeah, under this system, it is just a guarantee that it's going to get fucked up. <laughs> yeah. Again, there I think there's some, some areas where it seems kind of cool sci-fi stuff of like, that would be dope. I wish I had that, but I don't want Google to have that on me or I don't want, you know, it's about power. Yeah. The tech companies, I don't want them administering it. Like, and Mm -hmm. I'll be honest with you guys. Like I, to a lot of extent, give into this sort of stuff of like, you know, I have like the whole smart speakers and things like that. I get it. The, you know, Dave and Dan, I mean, they're, they're doing a pretty good <laughs> job, but I want to make sure they get me in all, all angles, you know? Mm-hmm. So I, I allow some of that stuff to happen in my own life, but it does suck that that's our only option for these, you know, for these technologies. Yeah. Yeah. Like the trade-off is pretty severe and it, and it is an issue of a power balance where like these contracts that you're signing there's just no way around them. There's no negotiating them. There's no good faith on their end. It is really just like, fuck you, pay me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I think you're right. Like the, a lot of these things can be convenient and can be useful. But when the power is placed in those, in those very few channels and those very rich channels, like you are really screwed when it comes to like fighting back. Yeah. And we must say that from our own experience, most of us, probably most of our listeners as well, most of you guys have a pretty cush situation when it comes to dealing with the receiving end of this stuff. I don't know if you're going to get into the more openly nefarious applications of surveillance capitalism in the sense of like, a, like okay, so like in a, like a situation in Gaza or something where they ruthlessly track all of all this shit that, and everything. Like, Yeah, unfortunately, this book does not really get into the warfare aspect of Mm -hmm. surveillance. It is much more focused on the consumer end. I mean, it talks, I mean, it'll talk about it tangentially. Like we talked about the CIA last time and like they're super invested in this shit (laughs) for a reason, you know? Yeah. (laughs) Uh, But it never really gets like, you know, here's how they use that to fucking plan drone strikes. So (laughs) yeah. And that, you know, that's the thing is if you are in an imperial core country or at least never find yourself on the receiving end of, the empire's actual barrel of its gun, then even, I you know I'm not trying to belittle here because I think it sucks that we have to deal with this stuff. At least I guess we don't have to deal with the literal like life and death situations of it. A lot of times, although health come health 
outcome wise, it is life and death in a way as well. It is, and we'll get there too. <laughs> there's there's also some fucked up shit going on. Quick wrap up on location. I mean, not a surprise. We're tracked like all the fucking time. Like there's so much research out there about it. Uh, let's see. In 2017, an investigative report from Quartz showed that Android fo- phones were collecting location information by triangulating with cell towers. Even when location services were disabled, no apps were running and no SIM card was installed. So, yeah. <laughs> Damn. Another study from Carnegie Mellon showed that uh, out of 23 participants, their locations were accessed around 5,000 times over a 14-day period. Uh, And this was uh, a few years ago, so I'm sure it's more now. But the whole thing with location is like the standard narrative is that, oh, it's, it's anom, what's the word? Anonymized. How do you say that? Anonymized. Anonymized. There we go. (laughs) But that's kind of the standard narrative. It's like, we can't tell who you are. We're just using this to sell you (laughs) shit, which is first off, I don't want you to sell me shit, but okay. But reporting has discovered it does not take much to like figure out who somebody is. All it takes is like a few key pieces of info, like their birthday and like their zip code. And you can pretty easily identify someone's metadata. I remember seeing a story about this. A while back, I don't remember which administration it was, but basically they were like, oh, yeah, we got like two pieces of information and we figured out somebody in the White House, like where where they were moving around. (laughs) I mean, yeah, that's all it fucking takes. Also, for those of you counting at home, if if your location services or whatever is accessed 5,000 times in 14 days, you know, 365 days a year, 357 (laughs) accesses of location services a day. So that's good. Cool. I love it. Love that for me. And let's look at how some of this stuff is used in a little example called Smart Cities. 2016, Google has a contest sponsored by the U.S. Department of Transportation. (laughs) Oh, okay. So, of course, every city bends over backwards and says, come on here and just fuck me, Google. Uh, (laughs) And if you win, quote unquote win, you get $40 million in grants. Oh, when Google kind of owns your data slash ass now. (laughs) So their whole idea is, what if we had sensors everywhere to run a city? One of their examples is, you know, do we really need noise ordinances? We could just use a sensor to determine what businesses, you know, are actually allowed somewhere by, you know, like, oh, is this business too noisy? Let's get rid of it. If If it's not noisy, even though it's not zoned correctly, whatever. You know, it's fine. Just don't even care what our neighborhoods look like just let someone else make that decision for us i guess <laughs> seriously like like they don't like city council zoning and planning commissions that much that they just ax them there is a quote let me find it google founders were getting excited about thinking of quote all the things you could do if someone would just give us a city and put us in charge <laughs> They just want to own cities now. (laughs) Guys, they make video games for this purpose. Go do that, please. Quit trying to take over our cities. You have outlets for this, for this need for control. So let's get to the the lucky winner, Columbus, Ohio. Flavortown, as I like to call it. Uh, Friend of the show, Columbus, Ohio. (laughs) What did they get out of this? Lovely deal. Public and private parking spaces were basically combined to all be rented spaces that were rented online. 
The price would vary in real time depending on demand, basically increasing their income from parking. Yeah, I can't imagine it was ever like five cents or something. (laughs) Yeah, or free when like nobody's there. (laughs) (laughs) These services calculated the most lucrative routes for parking cops. So fuck that. (laughs) (laughs) Come on, there's a time honored tradition. The traffic cops, you know, come the end of the month, you see scrub rookie (laughs) McGee over here, you say, listen, pal, you go down to 14th and Broadway and you stake yourself out right there, you know, right behind that one sign. Yeah, you'll pick them up. You'll find somebody. (laughs) Come on, man. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. So telling them, here's where all the expired parking people are. Go get them. They channeled money that would have gone to public transit into programs that would send an Uber to a crowded bus stop. Uh, Basically just privatizing everything. No more free parking, no more buses. No, no, no. We're doing tech now. (laughs) These people like never got to see or completely ignored the wonderful diagrams where you have like a like chock full highway, all these cars with people in it. And then you have the one bus holding on that equivalent people in it. Have you ever seen that? Mm. like it's essentially showing like the oh amount of space like single car drive single person cars pick up uh take up on the space versus like that many people on bikes and then that many people on a bus yeah it's like they never saw that they they don't apparently you're fucking up your like (laughs) traffic system when you send cars to a bus stop or to a train station they also switched all their public transit payment systems to Google systems uh, so they could get all of their parking and ridership information uh, shared with Google in real time. So why was Google doing all of this? To make a lot of money selling their data. <laughs> That's basically what they said. Uh, in 2015, probably one of the most horrible meetings ever, a meeting of tech leaders at the Yale Club. Oh, Ugh. God. Just... Hmm. Just, yeah, just one well Wouldn't be well sad if that building caught yeah. on fire. <laughs> we both went there. Uh, uh, so a group of people were talking there about Google Cities, and basically they revealed that to fund the project, they, they used targeted ads to people in proximity to businesses and then continued to track them over time through beacons and different location services and web browsing. Is beacons like a... You know, Navy SEAL operator style <laughs> program that Google's running? I don't know the details of it, but I think essentially it is It is like a, I think it's like a, a ping point, basically like a cell tower, but for internet. Okay. So like you connect, oh, did they get to run like Wi-Fi stations and stuff in the city or anything? Uh, I'm not sure about this project. I know they've done it in other cities. I think they did a set of kiosks in New York and it was hilariously like under the guise of like we're increasing you know internet access access. but it's like we're also getting your fucking shit so oh yeah (laughs) um i they i'm sure they did some of that in columbus as well because they had to like say oh well we're gonna imagine you know if they're doing like train stations and everything else they probably want to do the guise of like well you know you're at the airport we have airport wi-fi sort of thing Mm -hmm. but it's google (laughs) i don't know that's something interesting I think about all this, I guess, is that in our current world and from the Imperial core position, a lot of this stuff is beneficial and we mainly experience the good side of it. But I think it's a trade off between uh, like what the benefits we're getting are at the expense of right now, the 
Global South and people against whom generally this is weaponized, including, you know, minority communities and and oppressed communities here. Definitely. But also probably against ourselves in the future. (laughs) I would say yes. There is a chapter on how the kids are doing. And spoiler alert, not all right is the answer. So we are definitely borrowing time from our future selves. Yeah. I try to be lighthearted about this and sort of joke at their expense that they're addicted to their phones and stuff. But and like, they genuinely uh-huh. are. <laughs> but I think that they actually probably do have some sort of a problem. Uh-huh. But <laughs> the best I can do is just sort of poke at it and be like, I'm, I like you guys. Like, I'm on your side. Mm-hmm. Maybe get help. But like... <laughs> <laughs> see a professional but uh, anyway yeah (laughs) like i'm not the person i'm not qualified but nope nor should you have to be i'm always like this is one of many life's many of life's transitions from one screen to another take a look at the screen up here (laughs) and (laughs) don't look at bad screen look at good screen yeah (laughs) so wrapping up on smart cities i did a little extra poking into sidewalk labs the the google department behind this from their wikipedia page Uh, Sidewalk Labs provides a coffee table book to employees known as the Yellow Book, which contains aspirational designs of a futurist city run on its technology. Uh, They propose expanding its scope to include the power to levy taxes, control public services such as schools, roads, and public transportation, collect data on current and past locations of all members of the community, normal thing to do in your community, and to help redesign the local criminal justice system. That's who I want in charge of criminal justice. It's fucking Google. Did these guys, like, <laughs> read whoever the hell it was? Was it Jeremy Bentham, the one that made Panopticon? Like, that's... Oh, yeah. Like, literally... <laughs> they were like, what if we did that? We but made do it Google. Us. Yeah, we want to be the cool guys <laughs> running the prison... Uh-huh. That is our ubiquitous society that's always watching that. <laughs> yeah. I like how in the opening salvo, they're just like, we want to be the state. We want to raise taxes. We, <laughs> we want to become the state. <laughs> uh, don't worry, though. There's also a proposed system for rewards for sharing personal data. Oh, good boy. At least treats. I'll finally get fucking paid for this shit. Yeah. <laughs> You're not just stealing it? Cool. You get like a uh. little G badge mm. with different like tiers. Different pips. You know? Yeah. yeah, and so you get like you know gold tier. You like pay a subscription fee or something. Silver, you. We're so not far off from some shit we're gonna talk about. <laughs> Silver, <laughs> you share all the data. You know. Uh huh. Uh huh. Like just Matt, you share only the required data, and then if you don't have your G pin, you're shot on time. <laughs> Where's your cheap in? You're immediately like tranked and hauled off to the. This guy threw his Google phone in the lake. Get him! Touch <laughs> grass. Uh, you just shipped off to a lithium mine to mine lithium for their smartphones that they're tracking. For their other on. smart cities. <laughs> yeah. Oh, uh, anyway, <laughs> let's get into healthcare and biometrics. Okay, great. This is a good way to make sure people are able to manage their lives and stay healthier, right? Maybe, originally. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I mean, that was the original goal of a closed loop of information between patients, doctors, and the hospital servers. But uh, didn't stay that way. (laughs) Does this have anything to do with the fact that there's so many other people involved in our healthcare that aren't healthcare professionals, like insurance companies and all the financial bullshit that goes on with them? And these tech companies, of course, but... Yes, uh, insurance companies are a huge player in this. I mean, 
They want to be able, just like auto insurance people do, they want to be able to do behavioral underwriting for your fucking body. (laughs) So yeah, uh, it's a way for them to check up on people and not to help them, but to punish them or to try to get more money from them. If the direct analogy were to work, the guy I take my car to would have to be like, hey, I want to give you this device. It'll help me like <laughs> keep track of your car's health and stuff. But then my asshole insurance company would be like, we're going to read that information and see if we're actually going to cover your car, you know, all this other shit. But like in the healthcare thing, like ostensibly, there would be a good reason why you'd want to be able to track all your shit. Like, you know, I have one of those uh, glucometer things. Doc has to look at it or whatever. That's yeah. great. You know, she needs to look at it professional or whatever. Downside is insurance company gets it and is like, you suck, you suck. at managing this stuff. We're going to charge you more premiums, right? Yeah. You're going to punish someone who's like already trying to deal with something. Like, mm-hmm. what the fuck? So that's definitely part of it. Uh, another huge area is health and fitness apps, which are one of the most popular categories of apps. Like the Apple Watch, like trackers and mm-hmm. everything? Okay. Mm-hmm. And they are not subject to health privacy laws. <laughs> so... Any company, any which way can figure out how many steps I took in my heart rate. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, Most companies are expected to self-regulate, which is, you know, not a thing. Oh, self-regulation. Damn. Yeah, don't worry. They're going to totally keep themselves in line. No, no, no. I trust them about as much as I trust the Supreme Court. They're about to be doing (laughs) that shit. You hear about this? No. They published their uh, ethics guidelines, which I do need to give them credit for like the government agency or whatever. And they managed to publish an ethics guideline that was only nine pages long. Wow. I was expecting 900, but okay. Right. Yeah. I mean, Congress would have been 900 in the first appendices, but, (laughs) but yeah, uh, little thing with the ethics guideline is it doesn't say how it's going to be enforced or by whom. Okay. Yeah. 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 So who fucking cares? It doesn't matter. You you wrote a cool post. <laughs> I do want them to call them the Thomas Ethics Guidelines to make clear. It's like when you introduce a seating chart or something to a troublesome class or and they're like, Oh, is this because of our class? Like, no. Oh, I did this for everybody. No, no, it's mm-hmm. it's because of it's you. It's because of you. It's, it's because, because of that of one you, specific Clarence kid. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> because you're you, such an asshole. You're the reason we had to do this. Wow, that's great. So, but I'm sure they'll be able to police themselves. A little subtle call out that'll totally work. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) A study in 2016 of Android-based diabetes apps showed that by even downloading the software, you agreed automatically to, quote, collection and modification of sensitive information. Just like before you even... Before you even do anything. (laughs) You don't even have to make a profile. It's just Apparently, just downloading it is all it takes. Wow. Uh, And in a lot of these apps, they found tons of shady practices like accessing and activating your camera, reading your contacts list, calling phone numbers found in your device. What the fuck? Activating your microphone to record speech. Like just a bunch of shit they didn't need to be doing. Wow, that's like taking a joyride in somebody's phone, it sounds like. (laughs) Just like, what's going on over here? (laughs) We're in this bitch. This is great. (laughs) So there is some pushback. The Illinois Biometric Privacy Act offers some protection requiring written consent and giving consumers the right to sue for unauthorized biometrics. Facebook fucking hates this uh, because Mm -hmm. they've invested so much in like facial recognition technology. Um, so they're trying to like spend tons of money to turn back this legislation in other states. Well, yeah. I mean, if they're going to get meta going, you know, they want to fucking strap diodes mm-hmm. to you and everything else <laughs> to get that. <laughs> oh, yeah. 
There's also an effort from the National Telecommunications and Information Association to create guidelines on uh, biometrics and facial recognition. Uh, this was in 2015, actually, and it was continually weakened by, guess who, tech companies and lobbyists. <laughs> uh, one lobbyist has a particularly telling quote, everyone has the right to take photographs in public. If someone wants to apply facial recognition, should they really need to get consent in advance? Not okay. <laughs> yeah. Like we just accepted, like, sure, anyone can take my photo at any time and that's fine. It's not fine. That part in public is kind of fine. I mean... It's fine, but it shouldn't be encouraged, I think. I think it should be socially shamed. It should be socially socially shamed. Socially shamed. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I agree with that, of, like, being an asshole about it or whatever. Mm-hmm. Like, you hey, know. fuck you. Like, I, I think it is funny when people get all up in people's faces, like, oh, you can't film me in public. Yeah, I see a lot of TikTok videos of mm-hmm. people, like... Doing funny shit in public, and then someone always Karen's up to him like, you can't, eh, no one can vi- film me in public. It's like, well, I mean, you know, they can. You're just walking in it. It's not like they were like, the video wasn't about you, like making fun of you. It was just, you know. I don't know. I just, I'm uncomfortable with it, I guess. Like, I don't think it's a cool thing to do. Well, the flip side is cops. I mean, you got to be able to film cops. and like, You got to be able to film cops. Fuck yeah, obviously. But yeah. I guess I'm talking about just like regular citizens. <laughs> You could. I mean, I don't know. I guess I don't know where I stand on that. I like being able to film and interview people and stuff in public. Like, I think that's... That's fine. You mean like... Or what if someone's being an asshole to someone else and Mm. you want to film this in public? Like, and then that person a lot of times will get like, oh, you can't have this on your phone. You know, you can't film me. Even though they were being a dick and that's like the whole reason you're filming is because they're being like, you know, racist towards people or whatever. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Okay. I mean, I think it's just requires more nuance than a yes or no. But Maybe so, yeah. Anyway, the end guidelines from this effort were weak and only, uh, quote-unquote, encouraged transparency in policies. So, fucking nothing. <laughs> that encouragement, man, goes a long way. Do I get a Google badge? <laughs> yeah, and in any case, I don't want Google, the tech companies, to be out there filming people in public and taking pictures and facial recognizing mm-hmm. everybody. Yeah, it's not great. Um, Moving on to voice software. So you were right. I think earlier today you mentioned something of like, oh, technology could be this great personal assistant thing. And that is very much where the trend is going towards in terms of of voice technology. Uh, Google economist, that that guy again, Hal Varian, uh, (laughs) he points to, he's like, if you want to know what like the next big thing that people want, look to what rich people already have. <laughs> and uh, that is personal assistance. So he he weirdly compares this trade-off of information you know that you're sharing with people, uh, with tech companies, as sharing confidential info with like a doctor or a lawyer. But I'm like, there are like laws around that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, do you want to like, be required to have fiduciary responsibility toward me like is that yeah. what you're because I'm, I'm happy to do it sure <laughs> <laughs> yeah but voice recognition is seen as this infinite mine of opportunity to nudge people to buy things the idea is it's reducing points of friction in the buying process making it feel more natural trying to increase our idea of these devices as helpful friends you know make giving them names and personalities they're just trying to sell us more shit yeah <laughs> I agree with that. Reducing the barrier, basically, what I don't know, when I get down to, you know, ordering something on my phone or whatever, 
I guess it depends on the thing, but a lot of times there is this sort of barrier of convenience of like, did I run into any problems on the way? I'm probably giving up and doing it later. Like, mm-hmm. Versus if it was super smooth, super easy, blam, blam. Wow, that was great. You know, I did it. I spent the money and it's it's done. It's gone know? now. <laughs> yeah. So with voice, you know, there's obviously claims. All the data they get is totally anonymous. Don't mm-hmm. worry about mm-hmm. it. And they are getting lots of data. They don't just want like what people are saying into these devices. They want how they're saying things into these devices so they can better train their systems to sound more natural and to sound more friendly and to sound more like your little friend who's going to help you buy shit. A journalist signed up to be an audio recording analyst uh, in one of these companies and found these recordings were full of intimate and easily identifiable information. So yeah, definitely not anonymous. That means they heard their friend on there like, oh, fuck, that's Jim. (laughs) They found out some weird shit about Jim. They're like, I didn't need to know that. (laughs) (laughs) Too identifiable. Oh, no, I can't look him in the eye. (laughs) If you recall, Samsung got in trouble for this for their smart TVs. They were recording everything said within the vicinity of the TV and sending it all to a voice recognition systems company. Yeah. I remember when the Prism stuff came out, the Edward Snowden leaks mm-hmm. and everything, how they had the diagrams for the the Samsung. Because basically the CIA had a backdoor or something. They could turn on your camera thing even when it said off and leave the like recording thing off a fucking course yeah they could do that there was also something i think this may have been unrelated this may have been some sort of like company like dream what if i think maybe it was unrelated that they took out a patent on future technology samsung did which was like they could use that camera and detect whether the person was watching the tv and so when they would show ads, they would pause the ad or whatever, or they could like, sk- you could skip the ad by like standing up and, you know, so it's a McDonald's ad by standing mm. up and being like McDonald's and <gasps> you could like move on or something. Oh, that's disgusting. Oh, <laughs> something along like those lines. a horrible game. Yeah. <laughs> God. I mean, I'm not surprised. Uh, Another smart TV manufacturer, Vizio, was collecting viewing data from their TVs and selling their viewing history to advertisers and others, complete with other information like address, sex, age, income, marital status, household size, education, and home ownership. So so you're right. They were like saying, oh, are you in hot tits quarters? Like, but you're married (laughs) to so-and-so? Yeah, basically. Uh, All right, this is a picture of what I was saying, this patent thing. Okay, let me see. Oh, my God, the patent. <laughs> McDonald's. It was McDonald's, too. That's really funny. Okay, I'm going to save this image, and it might have to be It was Sony. Sorry, art. Samsung. I don't mean to slander you. <laughs> uh, don't worry. The kids are also going to get involved in this. A doll called My Friend Kayla had an app that was accessing the phone's cameras, recording and uploading conversations with the child, prompting children to submit personal information like where they live. That's not good. Yeah, it was banned in Germany in 2017 as an illegal surveillance device. Yeah, I would say so. What the fuck? (laughs) Isn't that fucked up? Like most people are, you know unsuspecting enough to give that over sure but like kids i mean they're they're fucking stupid yeah to varying degrees some of you guys <laughs> to are kids yeah, still are you're, you're brilliant because you're talking listening about little to kids us. to play with dolls but yeah <laughs> little kids 
pretty stupid. Fairly dumb. And we you know, were speaking as former little kids. Oh, yeah, yeah. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> moving on to what I think is some of the darkest stuff here, which is personality and emotion as data. Okay, so you take your Myers-Briggs. Yeah, they know what you did. I mean, it gets a lot deeper than that. Hmm. Okay, you take your anagram. And then, <laughs> and they know exactly what you put. You get your Enneagram, your Myers-Briggs, and your horoscope, and they know oh, everything. <laughs> the trifecta. Yes. Now they know what Harry oh. Potter house you're in. Uh-huh. They know everything, everything, everything. <laughs> okay. In 2017, Facebook was discovered to have studied 6.4 million high school students, college students, and other young adults in Australia and New Zealand. They were able to monitor posts to tell when young people were stressed, anxious, defeated, etc. And they learned that anticipatory feelings were more likely expressed at the beginning of the week and reflective emotions towards the end, which I guess makes sense. Okay. Uh, but yeah. what they wanted to know about this is when can we nudge them? When will they be most susceptible to advertising cues and nudges? <laughs> <laughs> Not like, hey, how can we help these teens be less moody mm -hmm. at the end of the week? <laughs> how can we fuel their depression shopping habits? <laughs> <laughs> Damn. So that's the kind of shit we're talking about here. Things that initially sound like, okay, maybe it would be nice to know like how people are feeling so we can help them is is never used for that reason. Yeah. And one thing you talked about earlier, the the idea of a, a rating system based on how much data you're willing to share that's like not too far off because IBM's Watson uh, is being trained to assess personality values and its tests are pretty telling. Mm. They rate people as unwilling to share personal information as anxious and sharers, you know, people who are willing to share as moral and agreeable. Oh, moral. Isn't that fucked? And agreeable. <laughs> Yeah, like, oh, this nice human gave me all their data. Yeah. This unruly human did not. <laughs> Damn. This is a fucking, you know, the traffic cop thing in RoboCop. It's like, you have 30 seconds to comply. Like, give me all your personal data. <laughs> I mean, it's it's the, if you have nothing to hide kind of thing, mm -hmm. you know? Like, oh, why are you being so secretive? Yeah, this is this is going to help us sell you shit. So please give us the information. And we all know personality tests have uh, really nasty ends, uh, such as using it in a company environment, mm -hmm. using it on employees. So what does that say when people who are moral are people who share data? You know, what does that mean for you and your employer? Yeah. The trick, especially, you know, you're coming up, you're about to get your first job or that's still on the horizon for you. Uh, you got to put on a persona like, Oh, you got to fake it, man. Just yeah. Lie. When you take those personality tests for the job interview or become the, a dog ass bitch. Yeah. Just like imagine if you were a corporate <laughs> Titan, if you were a soulless husk of a CEO, what would you look for in an easily dominated employee? Yeah. You want to be a nasty little sub. Yeah. That's what they're going for. <laughs> I remember getting one of those. <laughs> Wow, this isn't me at all. No, nope. me if I'm looking to like mentally dissociate while I'm at work <laughs> before a thing. Like, yeah, I guess I would just sort of tune out and do tasks and mm -hmm. comply. But <laughs> this is the worst possible version of me. <laughs> uh. 
So there's also, uh, beyond personality, there's also emotional analytics uh, using subtle physiological markers and what are called micro-expressions. Machines are being trained to detect these things. Uh, And as a lot of these things, it started off positively. Uh, You had an MIT professor, Rosalind Picard, working in this area to automate the analysis of different facial configurations and correlating them with emotions. Her initial intentions were really good. She imagined scenarios using this to coach a student for a job interview of like, here's how to fake being that good little boy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. or helping autistic children with emotional skills. Um, mm-hmm. There's lots of possibly good applications for this. But uh, her story is, is very telling. Um, she started a company and basically got pushed out of her own firm as it pivoted to focus instead on advertisers. Mm. Well, it could have been worse. I thought that maybe she got forced out once they applied this Voight-Kampf test to her and figured out she was indeed... <laughs> you like are not a, complying. <laughs> she was a, a replicant or whatever. Well, this is some fucking Blade Runner stuff. I mean, it's not that far off. I mean, the the new CEO, the person that, you know, became in charge of what was her company, predicts that emotion scanning will become like cookies taken for granted and you could get reward points for happiness... Uh, to increase engagement. So like, oh, you're having a good time on this app? Like, we are being rewarded for that. What the fuck? <laughs> reminded me of this game called We Happy Few. I was just imagining, like, what if everyone, like, ends up in a dystopia where they're always smiling when they're engaged with stuff because it, like, is socially beneficial or whatever. This has some completely different mechanism in that, but it's just, you know... This weird false, it's uh, in some ways similar to that Black Mirror episode, Nosedive, where you like have to be positive to people. Yeah, that's what I think about a lot. Microsoft holds a patent for a device to monitor user behavior to preemptively detect any deviation from normal or acceptable behavior that is likely to affect the user's mental state. So it can tell if you're, you know, screaming at a video game or doing a phone call. Any quote unquote deviations would alert trusted individuals like family members or doctors but you know i'm willing to bet they would not be upset if that also alerted let's say your health insurance or law enforcement Mm -hmm. so again under these systems there's no good way out of this no and i mean the only good the only good thing is i guess right now is that we do have essentially the the means of just being like no thanks right now (laughs) like that sounds creepy as hell, but that's assuming that you can decipher what they're telling you at the point that you say yes or no. And that is increasingly becoming a luxury because what happens with a lot of these applications and other ones, um, things that establish, let's say, your credit, um, things that establish whether or not you can get a loan, things that establish whether or not you can rent a place, uh, especially in developing countries. They don't have a choice. Mm-hmm. There are apps that do all of these things. Um, they call data from your text, your emails, your social media, uh, how often you charge your phone, <laughs> if and when you return your phone calls, how many miles you travel each day. Privacy is becoming not a right, but a luxury to be bought. This particular example of this app was um, to establish credit and originally launched in developing markets in Africa, but is spreading to the U.S. as well. We've talked about apps for landlords that can vet people. 
They scrape your social media profiles, including private messages, and feed it into a software to determine your, quote, financial stress level, including protected information that your landlord doesn't fucking need to know, like your pregnancy status or your age. Yeah. HR does this too. Prediction products that scrape for information on employees flagging down anyone who is a, quote, unquote, flight risk. Uh, That's another one. For you up and coming ones, I don't know. I'm just giving sagely <laughs> advice today. I love uh, it. HR, not your friend. They're not, not your there friend. Never to help friend. you. No. They say it sounds helpful. <laughs> human resources. Oh, mm. I'm a human. They're a resource for me. You know. No, you are the resource. <laughs> <laughs> they are exploiting you. Yeah. Uh, of course, there's the Chinese social credit system, which we could do a whole episode on. I thought this was an interesting study in language. (laughs) I don't know. The author, I think, has has a lot of bias in this area and in some other areas. I think I talked last time, there's definitely some anti-communist bias in some Mm -hmm. passages. Like, for example, uh, she frames the social credit system as resulting from high levels of distrust in Chinese society. It's framed as, as a response. You know, the original culprit is the shift to a quasi capitalist economy. But she also then tries to blame the Communist Party for dismantling social ties. And so I'm like, well, which one of those happened more recently? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like, okay. <laughs> a little weird. And in what way did they dismantle social ties? For example, the Chinese, the, the Communist Party of China has not exactly been dismantling the nuclear family. They haven't mm-hmm. been, uh, you know, pursuing a radical socialist or communist agenda in terms of like saying we're going to you know rapidly transform society now i mean mostly they've been building up their capitalist base so to the extent that they've been pursuing capitalist aims perhaps they've been you know atomizing people in some ways or another you know because of that's what i think like (laughs) i think that's more likely the culprit i don't think it's necessarily i don't know it it just felt like she was trying to blame both things at once and i'm like those are two different things though (laughs) yeah and i mean you know Sure, it's still within the same broadly socialist aiming society, but it it makes sense that they're going to have contradictions like that, I guess. Like, yeah, you're going to have attention. Anyway, um, the social credit system there kind of grew from originally a private sector move, a subsidiary of Alibaba called Sesame Credit. Mm -hmm. Uh, that created a personal credit score that took all kinds of variables into account. Things like timely payment of bills, the types of purchases you make, the quality and quantity of friends, uh, your degrees, uh, the car you drive, the job you have, schools, etc. This creates a character score. Damn. Yeah. So, I mean, this is the Black Mirror episode. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And if your score drops, it can get pretty nasty. Your friends might fucking ditch you because they're like i don't want to be associated with a low, low score however yeah they get like a notification <laughs> so. that says one of your friends is a bitch now like leave them <laughs> one of your friend sucks yeah they're total fucking drip and yeah you get lots of benefits if you're on the good side of it uh, you get good terms on loans faster visa permanence a prominent spot on dating apps mm. <laughs> this is where the good shit is this is where you get the w riz mm-hmm and basically, the government took over this program. They're like, hey, we can't just have this in control of, you know, one company controlling this. Mm-hmm. Let's go ahead and take that. So they, they took this and they they use that for their system. They also um, use it to track 
I don't know if it's the same system. They also track debtors and people who have defaulted on a loan, Mm -hmm. uh, preventing them from buying tickets for trains and airlines. That was the one that I thought was pretty crazy. Um, But some of these other ones were like selling and buying or building a house, enrolling kids in private schools or being promoted in the army or the party, et cetera. And I'm like, we also have similar restrictions of like, yeah, I don't think you can buy a house if you're like, if you have bad credit. Like, no, and also, <laughs> sorry, you probably, I mean, should you be able to enroll your kid in a private school if you're in debt like that? Like, I don't yeah, think you should like, be able to basically, be able to pay for it. you probably shouldn't be able to enroll your kid in a private school in most cases, unless there's some sort of weird situation. Mm-hmm. So much less if you owe people money or something. Yeah, like it was, again, framed as this like, the communists are controlling everyone. And it's like, we have lots of similar things. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. But then the flip side of that is, I guess, if you didn't owe people money, oh, now you have the right to. That kind of sucks. But no, it sucks. I mean, I don't like it. (laughs) Fuck private schools. You just shouldn't be able to, you know, do that. So yeah, yeah. But, I mean, they did see a, a 10% of debtors started paying back their loans after they were blacklisted from flying. So they're like, hey, it fucking worked. Which is <laughs> <laughs> crazy. A couple of other things. Uh, the government can also suspend social media accounts if users send messages with terms like Tibetan independence or Tiananmen Square. So, yeah, not used for great things either. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So, I don't know. It's interesting that you're talking about, you know, how it's applied in China. And you also mentioned, like, the loan aspect of it in... Mm-hmm especially being rolled out in maybe in the global South. Is that something we're seeing? Is that because you were saying, yeah, it's, it's increasingly a privilege uh, to, to have the privacy aspects from that. Is that something we're seeing that these companies are using, say, the global South to like as the wild west of data collection and then using those like data sets to once they get enough of that to then be like, okay, now we can go to you know, the more imperial core countries and and start working with them now that we have a data set to work on? I would say yes. Uh, I think in in the previous episode, we talked about, you know, the idea of this is kind of what the Gilded Age did of busting into these uh, unregulated markets like the railroads and just doing whatever the fuck they want, you know, exploiting whoever the fuck they wanted. That's definitely what they're doing here as well, is, is finding places where the laws aren't as strict and people are desperate and using them and and finding ways to profit off of them, learn how their system works, figure out how to test it, figure out what kinds of quote unquote benefits they can say people get from it so they can then bring that to the US and say like, look how great this is. We did it. <laughs> yeah, that makes makes a lot of sense. And so it's again, I mean, with anything is we are definitely getting fucked up by this stuff. Like it's it's hurting us capitalism it's hurting us but it's hurting somebody else a whole lot more you know it's it's yeah we don't know in certain some ways or we don't realize in some ways how it is benefiting us at their expense at the same time that it's hurting us like i mean we never want to diminish that and become like kind of weird detached sort of intellectual types that are like hey don't whine like it's really only people in other places that are oppressed by this thing like this you you this sucks for you too. Yes. But, but like there, but for the grace of God. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> you there, know? There's an Could entire, have been you. yeah, there's an entire other tier of suffering that they're in, that they, not you, that they are inflicting on someone else in your name. So the, the FTC shut down 
uh, talks of U.S. banks implementing a social media mining uh, system to determine credit scores. So we are temporarily safe from this. But like, there are many, many stories in here about FTC stuff getting overturned by Republicans. So like, I wouldn't fucking count on that, you know? Oh, yeah. And they're not going to call it social credit score. It'll be something like Liberty Credit Score or something. <laughs> yes. But uh, we'll, we'll get something like that, too, if we're not careful. A couple more nasty stories before we move on to <laughs> some more, some philosophy, actually. So you've got the Roomba. Uh, they started a revenue stream from selling floor plans of customers' homes. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah. Uh, if you opt out, you lose a lot of the features, like, you know, the auto start and stuff like that. Wow. So you just have to agree to sell the floor plan of your home for that? Essentially, yeah. Wow. Okay. <laughs> this one's creepy. Uh, Sleep Numbers Sleep IQ app. <laughs> uh-huh. Okay. I've seen ads for this stuff. Their privacy policy allows for third-party sharing, Google Analytics, and targeted advertising for a bed. <laughs> it captures movement, positions, respirations, heart rate, and all audio signals in your bedroom. Sleep number knows when you fuck. <laughs> wow, yeah. They get to hear the juicy shit. Okay, that one, I mean... I'm going to be honest. I was pretty much on board. Uh, you know, it's a little creepy. The rest of it. Mm-hmm. It's like not the best, to, but it's not that bad. I'm like, what could someone get from all that from me? I don't care that much, but that mm-hmm. a little too far. A little too far. <laughs> uh, and they can share this information even after you deactivate, cancel the service or delete your account. So there's no getting it back. Man, then you do like the... Um, you know, like the revenge porn laws or whatever, but for mm-hmm. sleep number but beds. But for sleep number, like, please don't blow up my spot. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Again, it goes back to what if you're in someone's quarters that you're not supposed to be. I mean, mm-hmm. that's that's a that's the type of privacy communists that we are. Is we we don't want anyone to. <laughs> Everyone be, can have an affair in communists. Yeah, we don't want anyone to be blown their cover. You know. Oh, that's bad. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't condone having affairs. <laughs> Anyway, so let's move to a kind of hodgepodge section called behavior modification, philosophy, and totalitarianism. (laughs) All right. Now, totalitarianism, that's obviously where we come in as the communists. That's what we do. Oh, you know, there's some Stalin quotes in here, bro. (laughs) Hell yeah. Uh, This is actually a combination of a couple of different chapters, but it was all just like weird shit. I didn't know where to put. So here it is. (laughs) So, starting off with friend of the show, CIA director Alan Dulles. Yeah, rest in piss. Stomp on your bones, etc. He claimed that communist countries were developing brainwashing techniques. And he put the boys on researching it for themselves. And hence, MKUltra was born. <laughs> Which never did anything bad to anybody. It was fine. A neutral good. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, at the same time, you have that going on. Uh, you also had a guy, B.F. Skinner. Uh, he became very popular. He was into behavioral engineering, a.k.a. shaping entire human populations. Well, no wonder he became very popular. He just shaped them all to like him. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was all an up. And so these Skinnerian techniques were taking off, particularly on trapped test subjects such as prisons and mental institutions. 
This eventually resulted in what's called the common rule, which requires informed consent, avoidance of harm, debriefing, and transparency. Um, this all came from a Senate investigation into MKUltra and other programs that were trying to modify human behavior. Yeah. Uh, that guy's name, Sidney Gottlieb, fucked up shit. That he's like, again, we were saying earlier, like that should be the ethics stuff for Supreme Court should be the Thomas rule. That that those guidelines should be the Gottlieb rule because he was like the like the mind control MK. Ultra. He was the one that just did it on his regular ass patients. Yeah, he just was like Insane. that. I'm a psychiatrist, but I'm going to do MK Ultra on you on the side. I'm not telling you. you know, and that's the whole thing about consent oh, and all that shit God. is like they used to not. They just didn't do yeah, that. They just would just experiment on you, and you didn't yeah. fucking know. And the like the old the Milgram experiments where they this wasn't MK Ultra or anything, but. They would bring you in and say, you know, hey, just like we're doing a learning test. Uh, shock this guy if he gets it wrong and then like mm-hmm. have you shock, Ugh. presumably shock him to death. Ugh. They didn't tell you shit about that. They were just like, oh, it's just like a test. It's fine. Oh <laughs> we're going to scar you for life. What the fuck, man? So like, yeah, nasty shit was going on, right? Mm-hmm. But what's interesting is that kind of the historical roots of this led to kind of a perception of these types of testing as something the government does. Uh, The public only really imagined uh, behavioral modification as a government scheme, not a private one. Because of that, there's a pretty big loophole and the academics that are a little bit nasty, they want to get nasty, can now just work with a private corporation and not be held to these common rule standards. Yeah, there's no psychiatric board. There's no, there's no fucking, there's no body. There's no oversight. Yeah. It's not really medicine or anything. They're just an asshole working for for a corporation. Yeah. And, and there's tons of examples of these kinds of experiments. And most of them are like fairly benign. Like an example she comes back to a lot is Facebook did this thing and and it, it is still out there um, of showing friends who voted and having like a counter of like, here's all the people that voted near you or whatever. Mm-hmm. And they saw that like it led to more people voting and they're like, look how we can do that. And like, they're very proud of it. Uh, but it, the reality of it is like, that's kind of like a lot of control to give to Facebook. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah Cause know? they could be like, okay, uh, we want these counties to vote and we don't want these counties to vote. We're exactly. Gonna... <laughs> like maybe we shouldn't give that power to them, but okay. Sure. Then we get into a chapter on philosophy, which is admittedly not my thing, but the main focus is on free will as a concept um, and how basically the idea of will, the will part of the free will, is saying, I'm going to do that in the future. You know, I have a right to determine my future. And the argument being that these tech companies want to take away that right by modifying it. More fundamentally, free will, are you in, are you out? Do you like it? Do you know? Yeah, Are you a predestinationist? No. Fuck no. no. Uh, I mean, so in contrast, there's a lot of scientists in the Skinnerian view of things who don't believe in free will and who think it's all just unexplained science. Anything that is, you know, disorder is just not explained yet. I don't agree with that, but. (laughs) Yeah, but they're saying free will is just a result of chemical processes, like your brain doing certain things at certain times. I don't disagree with that, I guess. So scientists like Skinner and his mentor, Max Planck, or maybe Planck. I'm assuming it's Planck. Planck's constant. 
they believed in the idea of like everything has laws, including human behavior, just like other hard scientists uh, or other hard sciences, hard scientists, just really rock hard scientists. (laughs) Sexy. Meyer believed that you could only understand human behavior if you viewed other humans as an other and that free will wasn't real. It was simply phenomena that we didn't have understanding for yet. Meyer insists that concepts like the soul, self, and mind are subjective and have no scientific value since they cannot be measured. He viewed humans as just just animals or organisms. Is this not essentially a materialist outlook on people? I think it could be. I am a little more on the esoteric side of things, I think. I, I think... I know I'm not religious, but I I think people have a certain spirit to them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I don't think we're just necessarily meat bags. If we are, we are extremely complicated meat bags that I don't know if we'll ever come to fully understand. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I get that. I don't think that we're ever going to be able to just plug in and just be like... You plug in a baby and you can see where they're going to be in 20 years. Yeah, well, let's make this one <laughs> a doctor and just, you know, hit the yeah. doctor button. On the other hand, to some extent, what Skinner said, I mean, like I'm kind of in on is, or whoever it was, it was like. It's a combination of Skinner and his mentors. It's like, uh, we are sort of a press certain buttons, get certain outcomes sort of creatures. We are. But I think the question is, I, I don't know. I'm not sure exactly where I stand on this. I agree in, in some sense, like, yeah, humans respond to stimuli for sure. Yeah. But. I think the issue that the author is trying to make is, okay, even if we take that as true, who gets to hold the button? Okay, yeah. Who's controlling the stimuli? We're give, If that's the case, we're giving them huge amounts of power that they're letting, we're letting them train us, we're letting them hurt us, we're letting them observe us to such an extent. If humans are just meat bags that you press a certain button to make things happen. What happens, you know, the more and more they start understanding things like the psychological things, the, this person is helpful because they share data kind of shit. What kind of society can they create and for whose benefit? Yeah. I think that's the crucial point to me because I think to some extent you have to acknowledge that. Yeah. You're like you said, people do respond to things, you know, whether it's cruelty or rewards or whatever, to varying degrees, you can get people to do things like to whatever extent they're able. This is where the chapter on totalitarianism kind of comes in. I mean, for sure, it's super anti-communist. There's a whole thing about like Stalin talking about like the changing of souls or something. And I'm like, okay, yeah. To me, that was just a rephrasing of the boot is wet, but Mm -hmm. whatever. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, but this is bad. Yeah, yeah. Let me find the quote. It was... Uh, We're looking to make new men, right? To the new Soviet man. Essentially, yes. Saying uh, he was talking about the production and engineering and reshaping of souls. And, you know, of course, that was framed as a very evil thing to do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but besides that, going into the general philosophy of, of totalitarianism as something that is total domination. You know, think of 1984 of, like, at the end, he's like, I love Big Brother. Like, yeah, you know, that kind yeah, of shit. Yeah. The way you get that is by completely isolating a human being and and making them distrust everyone else and things like that. Zuboff argues that we are facing a new kind of totalitarianism that doesn't necessarily come from big government, but comes from capitalists nudging us into certain directions. Yeah, and I think it's very possible. I mean, I think that 
I think that the it, honestly, if it's left unchecked, it's it's just a step on the road to you know, a fascist totalitarianism sort of situation. I mean, I feel like when, if you're looking at it in a Marxist perspective, capital always goes to its, tries to go to its next stage of imperialism, of monopoly, and tries to drive out all other competition, you know, or or make a cartel with them. And when you get into that situation of, you know, monopolized and cartelized uh, and globalized, capital you're looking at a state i mean you're looking at states that have carved out their various uh territories their turfs you know i mean google has this way yeah for sure (laughs) they're gonna levy taxes they already said (laughs) yeah we would like to become a state please yeah and if they do that i mean they will face the same drive toward fascism that any capitalist state has if eventually they've got to defend their them and theirs against the masses and the only way to do that is to repress them yeah i mean if you think about a lot of the technology we've talked about today being used not only in a capitalist sense but in a specifically fascist and totalitarianism sense like yeah that's extremely possible like all of this stuff from the mass surveillance of audio video whatever to location being able to track people who might be dissidents being able to um, and, and not just like in that kind of what we would think of traditional surveillance kind of way, but also in the rewarding people who were acting well kind of way. Mm-hmm. I, I believe I mentioned this in, in previous shooting the shits, but the example given is, is one of Skinner's, uh, preeminent works, a utopian novel, quote unquote, utopian novel, Walden two. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's it's a completely controlled community, uh, like a super organism that can be shaped and controlled, quote, as smoothly and efficiently as champion football teams. Huh. <laughs> uh, it's a planned society where there is no politics, only a non-competitive group of planners who dispassionately control society towards the greater good. Only productive forms of emotions are allowed. Does that remind you of any conversations we've had today? Uh, <laughs> with anger, fear, and rage categorized as wasteful and dangerous. I don't know, man. Also, anyone who's had a bad day, though, kind of is like, I could go for that. <laughs> but <laughs> only on those actual bad days. <laughs> the rest of the time, it sounds like it would suck. And uh, I don't know. Uh, that's It's very, I think when you get into that technocracy side of it, there's a lot of overlap between what communists want and that in the sense of there being this post-political society of just admi- the administration of things is how Engels put it, right? Of just where we're no longer, you know, vying class struggle, anything. There's no, it's just who, you know, how can we get this stuff to people? Because it's, it's all solved. But I think the way you get there. <laughs> whether that's by Google taking power and crushing <laughs> all opposition and then this is what the remnants get to live under or whether it's by the people destroying or appropriating companies like Google and using that for themselves democratically and then finding one day that, oh, we're all actually all just working together and like managing shit. You know, if that's the road you get there, then maybe it's utopian, but. Yeah, I, I think it, again, for me, comes down to the distribution of power, which I think is what you're saying as well, which is 
I mean, I don't have an issue with, with making a society run well. That sounds good. But the issue is who decides who the planners are, who has access to this information, and anything that takes away, like, I guess, a personal freedom, such as, like, having feelings. That's pretty important to the human experience, you know? Yeah. What's concerning to me is that so much of tech is based off of these kinds of ideas. You know, that these tech people do see themselves as harboring in a utopia and as, as, you know, wanting that kind of mass control. My issue, I think, is, like, yes, I, I want automation and I want things to be convenient and I, I want that, but I don't, you know, I still want to respect privacy. I still mm-hmm. want to respect freedom of movement. I still want to respect, I want to allow for human elements. Like, I don't want it to become a society of, Science is always right. I mean, obviously, I love science, and I'm very pro-science. <laughs> in this house. I, in this house, we love science. <laughs> but I don't want it to, because, you know, you have to have a line, because eventually you'll fucking end up doing eugenics or some shit. If you're yeah. like, well, science says this is a better human. Like, fuck you, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, it has to be a science rooted in in ethical and, and moral standards that the community agrees on. So that's where I bump up against a perfectly planned society is like, okay, who decides it's perfect? <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, I'm going to push back against the author here a little bit and give some kudos to uh, comrade Stalin here for a little bit, because what he's saying about remaking souls, I think can come into play in this conversation of, we do have to have, like Lenin said, a transitionary, Period. And this is actually controversial in communist circles of some people say, you just got to do communism right away. And we've heard, you know, Kropotkin say, but I, even then I think he's not focusing on the details of it, but even an anarcho-communist society trying to do it all at once will still run into these things. It's just not a staged out, but like the transitionary period of we, we all in living memory have capitalism in us, drying that boot out evolving ourselves, not in the biological sense necessarily, but socially to where we're ready to introduce technologies like this in a, like as a society in a socially cooperative way. Like we've forgotten enough of the barbarism. And so, so we are um, like the guy in dispossessed saying, bay me, bay me. Like he doesn't <laughs> understand what old capitalism was. Yeah, I think we have to have trust rebuilt into society because social trust has withered so much that we have to say, okay, like we have worked together really well for like several decades now. Like there's a new generation. Let's start introducing some of this stuff in a way that's not going to feel creepy because you know who's running it and you trust who's running it. Yeah, and I I think another thing you were talking about of like the limits, right, of of privacy and things like that is... Right now, the only mechanism we have for this is this liberal sense of like, let's create restrictions. Let's create laws like uh, here's a bill of rights and, um, you know, you can't do these things to to transgress them, but everything else is fine. And so, so you end up with this like restriction of the democratic will sort of artificially placed because people aren't good enough to get there yet. And eventually, if, if you're able to kind of maybe use that as your training wheels or maybe just, you know, just kind of swear off of that stuff for long enough that eventually when you have well-formed enough people that are so far beyond and so, let's be honest, propagandized to and t- told, you know, how good this is compared to how shit everything used to be that 
they'll be able to do that without, you know, our, you know, uh, very detailed laws that are like, oh, this is off limits, this is, and, and be able to like just use the nuance of that together as a community and be like, hey, don't be assholes to people. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think it will eventually become simpler and become more of a socially enforced thing as opposed to a, you know, we have to codify all these predictions because if we don't, fucking evil bad guys are going to come and take it. Yeah, yeah. Again, it comes down to being being nice, being chill. Much as a like much as your understood social interactions among your peers would be say on the playground as a kindergartner. Mhm. Because it's our brand of communism is just like be chill, <laughs> be nice, be good, like share. Anyone could get it. <laughs> Pretty simple stuff, people. I think you're right, though, in that, I don't know, I mean, we're talking about utopias here. And mm-hmm. and again, I think tech does try to lean into that language. But like, we're, you know, classic, you know, utopian thought, or just, you know, you could say Marxist thought too, focuses a lot more on theory, necessarily than practice. In some cases, some people are, are practice guys too. Tech is very much the opposite. They have very little theory and it's all about just like do first, think later. <laughs> mm-hmm. Move fast and break things, right? Uh-huh. <laughs> the kinds of worlds they want to create are these really connected systems. Um, you know, it's described as a hive society in, in some ways. An example given is, you know, AI isn't everything in this scenario. You're in a workplace. Uh, you're on a construction site. Only certain people can use jackhammers because they have the training for it. If someone without the credentials approaches the tool, an alarm goes off and it would disable itself. Again, we are automating the process. We are cutting out the human element. We are trying to control every single thing. Why does the alarm go off? It shut off. I don't know. Like, what are you going to do? Fucking arrest the guy? Like, Bill, what the fuck? (laughs) Like, what if you were just walking near it? Yeah. I'm sorry, you like having your fucking egg salad sandwich in your hand. Like, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to do this. <laughs> um, you know, and and you think, okay, maybe that could make sense for a construction site, right? Sure. It's you know not just going to get used for that. <laughs> um, <laughs> what? Alex Pentland, director of the Human Dynamics Lab at MIT, believes in studying quote unquote social physics with a god's eye view. <laughs> he works on modeling face-to-face interactions into predictable data with sensors and data from cell phones, uh, something that came to be known as reality mining, which is just the worst term. <laughs> uh, and just a clarifying question. There's no chance that this guy would be, say, the guy taking in the God's eye view of the data. It, it's not going to be him, right? Seeing the God's eye view. You know. It, it probably would be. Probably would be. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Strange. Yeah, I think so. Um, yeah, kind of just made himself God. No big deal. Not what you would expect. Uh, <laughs> and in 2009, he created badges for 22 office employees so their manager could better understand their social systems. Once again, enslaving the already enslaved into this tech. Uh, <laughs> he went on to found a company focused on this type of analytics so that managers can form a team of employees with, quote, harmonious social behavior and skills. His company took off even as their instruments quantified gender differences in interaction patterns 
totally not going to be any ramifications for that kind of data, right? Not like we're going to like punish women for being socially different than men. <laughs> uh, comparing their work as the money ball for business to reveal how people interact, uh, their tone of voice, if they physically lean in to listen to somebody, uh, and many, many other metrics. Uh, again, we've talked about this before, personality analysis and this kind of shit can really affect minority populations, mm-hmm. women, neurodivergent people. It's just fucked up. Yeah. <laughs> Pentland, uh, at a 2016 conference in Silicon Valley, described people as, quote, the factor that was always messing things up. <laughs> <laughs> and that machine learning is necessary to analyze patterns and correct, quote, broken behavior. So this is the guy that wants to be God. Yeah. And it's funny, too. You know, they always want to move fast to break things. Whatever. They want to, you know, put the put the the practice out there without any theory and just kind of let the theory emerge based on what they see. But the theory will be developed in the, you know, the purpose of the machine and its direction and the directions in which to nudge people, the values that you derive to decide where should I nudge people are always going to be decided by these guys. Like that's, that's their conception of it. They don't have any democratic, like, appeal to you know or or liberatory appeal to like freeing people to decide for themselves uh quite the opposite they want to slave everyone to their to their mechanism they 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 think you're too stupid to figure out how to do things you need to be fixed in some way you're fucking everything up mm-hmm. and they're there to fix it for you that quote really hit me in that way of just like wow with the condescension here is insane they are really just trying to completely render human existence into data in order to funnel us towards certain things that they get to control and they get to profit off of and move us towards a type of collective society, but not like the cool kind that we want, but like (laughs) one one that's very controlling and very like to, to sinister purposes. Let me put it that way. Yeah. I want to parse that out a little bit because you know, we, you can sort of draw a parallel between the two sides and say, well, you know, okay, well, we want to change things too. But I think this is where uh, maybe it's theory, maybe it's practice, whatever, but like our methods here differ is that when we say we want to free people, you know, it's not free people to do whatever you want. Like who Mm -hmm. cares? Like fucking kill somebody. It's not, you know, (laughs) like complete, uh, the, 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 caricature of anarchy of just like chaos Mm -hmm. in the streets or something murder everywhere yeah but we want to free people from you know people like this all your sort of controlling things to govern yourselves like to be in charge of yourself and your community and work together to figure out what are we going to do to live to get like we're, we're we're not like we're not going to be in the wilderness on your own dealing with no other people. Like we're not going to that. That's not going to happen. So in any conception of how are we going to build a future society, you have to understand that you're going to be in with other people. So there's going to be some sort of democracy or something aspect of it. Decision-making as a group. Yes. And that's what these people don't get is like, they want to be the guy. They want to control it. (laughs) Yeah. Just sort of like hurting their Sims about. Yes. Yes. And that's it. We're like we're we're the antithesis of that, and that yeah, we do believe there should probably be some nudging in some directions. But who should decide that is you? 
Like, we should decide that together. Like, and we should decide, you know, to what extent is that nudging, like, even appropriate at all? Like, it probably for a long time is not appropriate. Like, and then we'll have to, like, kind of increase that as we're, as we better understand the project itself. Like, as we've, as we've recovered from the trauma we've all experienced as, you know, people in capitalism, like... But I mean, if you think about the dispossessed, it eventually becomes stifling. They're, they're kind of social pressure and they have to reevaluate of like, maybe we have been, we have become our own, you know, enforcement and we're not being true anarchists in that way. Mm-hmm. So I think there's another side of that equation too. But yeah, I mean, like, I think you're right. I think collectivism doesn't have to be this evil, scary word that it can so often be painted as. It, it can be, you know, used for collective good. And I think we just haven't seen enough examples of that in large scale projects that it's really intimidating and really scary to like have that much trust in other people at a time where, again, trust is at an all time low. So I think, yeah, it's going to take a long time to build that trust. I think it's going to take a lot of a lot of intention and a lot of just a lot more careful thought, because I think what's happening right now is, again, these people are just fucking going for quick money and not seeing all the consequences. Yeah. But what makes them dangerous, I think is that they can play on some of that like dream for the future. Yes. But all totally. these, all the steps that they skipped, like that they <laughs> left out as a question mark. <laughs> like Who knows what's going to what happen? People think yeah, those are all the <laughs> crucial things. Like <laughs> they, mm-hmm. they left, left out all that part and basically just like made a different version of the boss, but they're the boss and you're still, you're, their helpless product. No, it's really weird. Like I read a lot of quotes from these guys that seemed almost quasi socialist in nature. Like there's one from Zuckerberg. Let me find it. He thinks that tech will quote, free us up to spend more times on the things we all care about, like enjoying and interacting with each other and expressing ourselves in new ways. A lot more of us are going to do what today is considered the arts. And that's going to form the basis of a lot of our communities. (laughs) Like, Dude wants to get to commune life. He's just doing it in the just the dumbest way possible. <laughs> <laughs> that mindset or like that um this tech bro approach to this of like you know using some of the socialist stuff but like dreams I but guess. But completely ignoring that part of it in a weird way of like how is how are we going to get from you you know being a fucking billionaire to that? They like God King with all this. Uh-huh. It, it's um. It reminds me of when we were talking about the democratic centralism and Luxembourg's critique of it. Like if these guys were like sort of a weird corrupt version of a dem- of a like dark side democratic <laughs> centralism, because she mm-hmm. was like uh with she was dissing on Lenin at the time, which don't diss Lenin, my he's my boy, but still, <laughs> she said nothing will more surely enslave a young labor movement an intellectual elite hungry for power and this bureaucratic straitjacket which will mobilize the movement and turn it into an automaton manipulated by a central committee let's say we replace central committee with tech companies mm-hmm. i mean you're basically looking at the same thing it's like nothing's gonna more enslave us than just like saying oh yeah what if we go to socialism but like underneath <laughs> tech titans under fucking google and facebook yeah you're never gonna get there they merge and become google book and we all die yeah <laughs> it's gonna be great couple more sections here. Uh, let's talk a little bit about some of those those consequences that those those pesky consequences that those tech guys just don't seem to want to look at. <laughs> One of them being the youth. 
the youth they're they're okay it's not not a problem they're gonna be fine with this right they're gonna be totally fine except uh, a study <laughs> uh, asked 1,000 students to abstain from all digital media for 24 hours and uh, it did not go well what happened to them uh, students experienced boredom confusion distress and isolation uh, their responses were characteristic with clinically diagnosed addictions yeah can confirm <laughs> yeah you just it just is yeah you know that's uh that's it when whenever that study was done it's still the case now i mean this this is rightly compared to the kinds of methods you use in casinos to lure players to stay former facebook president sean parker even admitted admitted to using variable reinforcement in the forms of likes and comments so if it ever seems like it's random sometimes it is because they want you to stay hooked like that little rat keep pressing the button (laughs) one thing that I think that younger generations, maybe to the extent that they are as tech exposed as, you know, those of us in the West or whatever, have a lower tolerance for boredom or boredom feels more intense and more like mm, of a negative emotion. Yeah. I have noticed this in myself as well over the past few years. I think boredom is extremely important for creativity. I think it's, those are the times when you think of things. Yeah. Um, and if you constantly have, you know, a podcast going in the background, which I am guilty of doing, you don't have time to come up with, with comic ideas or, or jokes or whatever it is you're trying to come up with because the, you know, shower thoughts are there for a reason. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I, I do try to create small moments in my day where I am not consuming anything and I am just, you know, sitting and, and being with it you know like i think it's really important to cultivate that as a practice hell yeah jumping on the advice train (laughs) try to be bored we're a device podcast now try to be bored (laughs) that's my dream oh my gosh (laughs) young people are uniquely susceptible to this shit in adolescence you are primed to be oriented towards others basically teens want to fit in fucking breaking news Fair enough. I now, <laughs> if I do, you know, when uh, Myers-Briggs, not the best thing, but like, you know, if I do mm-hmm. that, I always end up 100% introvert, 100%. But like uh, in high school and stuff, I would, I would have been like, no, I'm an extrovert. Oh, you would have been. Yeah. You know, cause, and that's just being a teen maybe, or considering yourself more extrovert, even if you're introverted really, but still. Well, I mean, that's like the time in your life when that is encouraged and it's also like psychologically where you're at you're like trying to form an identity you know you're like i really like this i really don't like this some of that's through introspection and some of that is experimenting and some of that is how you relate to other people Uh, now ideally you have a healthy conflict between this you say okay i like this my friends don't like this does that mean i'm a jackass and i should ditch this or should i ditch my friends like you're able to work those things out and find your crowd and stuff like that Ideally, this results in a healthy sense of identity. And when I'm talking about this, I'm also including extended adolescence. So like young adulthood can get into this too. But what happens now is um, studies are showing that Gen Z in particular relies on social media for their psychological sustenance. So you now have this what's called an outside looking in mentality. Uh, The idea of I am viewing others and I am also being viewed. (laughs) Okay. The self doesn't really exist unless other people are looking at me. Uh, which has huge ramifications for mental health. Uh, You have that inability to tolerate solitude or boredom. Um, You have an unstable sense of self. You have control issues. You have negative self-esteem. You are constantly on display. Um, 
Social psychologist Irving Goffman uh, has the idea of a backstage for the self. Mm-hmm. If you're a married person, I would say this is the nasty shit you can say to your spouse that you can't say to anybody else on this planet. Yeah. <laughs> you know, just like you can be a real nasty man around them and it's fine. Uh, or when you're by yourself and you're being fucking embarrassing and like singing to your cat or whatever it is. That's not embarrassing. I go really loud and Broadway and hammy with it. But more you know. singing to your cats. <laughs> They love it. <laughs> I I do a lot of that. <laughs> but as social media becomes more pervasive and invasive, it is harder and harder to find that backstage. It is shrinking. Um, anyone can record you at any time, leading to young people actually censoring their real-life behavior. Well, I could see a little bit of the latter part, because it's very invasive. But are they really making the argument that some young people lack... I guess a strong of a feeling of a sense of self. Is that what they're saying? Yeah. Um, I mean, you, you have anecdotes in here and, and studies in here about particularly girls are affected self-esteem wise. Um, there's, you know, obviously the, the FOMO kind of effect, there's body image issues. There's also just the idea of like, you know, if not enough people comment or like this birthday post, like I'm going to feel bad, you know? These terms sound extremely weighty and extremely like dire. And I think the the actual stories that go with them are a little more mundane of like, yeah, I felt bad because like everyone's hot and I'm shitty yeah. because you're seeing a highlight reel like, duh, like, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, you're going to feel bad because everyone only posts the best things and life isn't always the best. <laughs> the idea behind it is just that like psychologically adolescents are extremely susceptible to this kind of stuff because that's what they're supposed to be susceptible to. But when you have that in a constant feed in your hand all the time, that's a problem. You're supposed to be able to have breaks from that. You're supposed to be able to go to your room and fucking listen to whatever it is you like to listen to. You don't care what they think. You're supposed to be able to like go do your own thing and be your own person and learn who you are without other people around. Yeah. Which you still can. You can. Totally. It's just harder. Harder to do. You still can have your kid do this. It's just harder to raise them and support them in an environment like that. And why is it harder for you to, you know, avoid these social pressures and, and, and this technology weighing on you? Why is it harder for you to raise your kid in an environment where they can have like a good social support system and everything else? Why are we going through all that and talking about that now? Is Is it because this is some, you know greater good that we're aiming for that we all have to suffer a little bit to bring about no no it's so some jackasses can make money off of your children yeah like remember the study in new zealand they want to know when they should send them ads yeah (laughs) so they're gonna fuck with their fucking algorithm so they feel bad the reason you're going through the you know and you're right i think uh to characterize it like that of uh it's not the end of the world it's not like i literally don't have a sense of self but like it, it like weighs on you it's bad it doesn't feel good then the reason that you go through those times of not feeling good due to technology is not required it's not for anything the way of the world (laughs) it's the way that some people have made the world because they wanted to make money yes and i mean even in terms of like cyberbullying, like that is such an issue because it used to be like kids could get an escape you know, like if, even if you got bullied at school, you'd go home and maybe like your home life is a lot better or you had friends, you know, at a, you know, that were in your neighborhood or church or whatever, like you had different groups and now those groups are so inescapable that it just follows them everywhere. 
and I just, I just don't think kids were meant to function like that. Like I think they need to be able to have different environments. Yeah. Maybe an argument for tuning out, going full Luddite as kids. <laughs> I mean, I've read about I that. I would love to try it with my own, but I mean, it's going to be, I mean, you can do it for to a certain age, but just when they get into school, there's going to be a lot of fucking pressure. That's what I hear. Yeah. Uh, that's true. It's possible, but it's an uphill battle. So this is all depressing, right? Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's pretty depressing. Uh, can we do anything about it? Uh, yeah. I, I mean, I feel like you're you're gonna read off the like business addresses of various tech corporations and <laughs> maybe a few defense contractors uh, in their warehouses. That'd be lovely. <laughs> uh, you know, you can you can give that a search somewhere. I'm sure. Unfortunately, this book does not do that. Uh, this book focuses. I, I mean, we, we talked about this in the first episode. This book does not necessarily give solutions for these things. It's very much more about analyzing the problem, which I think is important. Mm-hmm. It instead uh, documents some of the pushback in the legal sense and also in uh, more of an individual sense. Um, and then goes on to say, like, hey, it sucks that this is all we can do. Right? Or this, th- th- this is not a solution. You know, it's basically like, hey, even if you in particular say, I'm going to push back against this, like, good for you. That's not enough. Mm-hmm. It is the system behind it. That's the problem. But it doesn't really address that. It doesn't really. No, it doesn't say, look, anyway, we're going to meet here and, you know. Yeah. And that's fine <laughs> bring, for it to be outside work. the scope of the book. That's okay. I think so. I think they covered plenty. So, <laughs> um, it does talk a little bit about some of the legality around this stuff. We've talked about some of the court cases involved already, but one big issue is uh, there is a distinction between physical and informational privacy. Uh, so physical privacy is whenever someone is secluding or concealing themselves in some way. Information privacy, that's violated when data, facts, or conversations uh, that someone wishes to keep secret or anonymous are acquired or disclosed. U.S. law focuses on the Fourth Amendment when it comes to privacy, which is really about describing privacy between individuals and the state. Again, we have that big loophole. It's not all bad news, necessarily. Uh, You have the EU creating the General Data Protection Regulation in 2018, which has companies justify their data activities within a regulatory framework. There's lots of rules about data breaches, uh, definitions for consent, a right to erase data, and there's consequences. There's substantial fines and the possibility of class action lawsuits. Okay. And that's now that's the reason you have to click more buttons on the cookie stuff now. Yeah. Yeah. Like there has been some movement. It is small and it is constantly in threat of being eroded because, you know, they're not giving up. Facebook and Google are still in Europe and they still have huge teams of lawyers fighting things based on freedom of expression and the right to engage in economic activity in order to fight these privacy laws. Facebook even issued new terms of service that moved users in other continents to be held under U.S. privacy laws so that they couldn't sue. (laughs) Oh, they were just like, by using this, you agree? Uh Uh-huh. Damn. So, yeah. Uh, Because you can sue them if you're in an Irish court, apparently. So, fucking Ireland. Great job. Yeah. Once again, killing it. (laughs) She also talks about the kind of movement of 
artists and, and their relationship to surveillance and that there's, there's quite a few artists who are interested in this as a subject. Um, you have kits for, um, you know, protest kits for, uh, that will have like bandanas that scramble facial recognition, uh, and, you know, a black box for your phone and, and all kinds of stuff that you can like use to try to thwart authorities basically. Um, there's signal blocking phone cases, false fingerprint prosthetics, uh, clothing that can confuse facial recognition by having like lots of different faces on it. Dude, we got to get our like fucking Stalin band together and (laughs) knock over some banks with this shit. I know. I want the false fingerprints. That's so cool. That's Bonnie and Clyde, man. (laughs) I know. And it's really interesting because like most of these are in the context of like, this was an art project here. And I'm like, well, that's fucking cool. But also like, can we give that to more people? (laughs) Yeah, dude. Imagine doing your art project and being like, okay, so these are false fingerprints? Like, <laughs> it's insane. Think, what the fuck? Is this guy okay? That's awesome, though. I mean, like, and seriously, not just in the like cool crimes, but a little context. bit. Yeah, but like, not just in that context, but in the, and talk about the totalitarian regimes or whatever. I mean, fuck, if you're in Victor Orban's Hungary or whatever, like, you're going to want to have some fucking way to get around the police fucking detecting where you're at. Yeah, and I think Zuboff's point here was like, this is really cool, and I'm glad these young people are doing this, but also like, holy shit, this should be an alarm bell that like, what does it say that people are undertaking these kinds of measures? Like, she's saying, we shouldn't have to do this shit. Like, that's fucked up. Correct. Um, but we might have to. What is <laughs> what is appealing to the liberal democratic consensus that has allowed this to get to this point? Exactly. A certain road got to this point of what good is the road? Yeah, I mean, your fucking privacy laws aren't going to do shit, you know? Yeah, like That's what they subverted to get here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, they're going to, by hook or by crook, like, they're going to fucking wait out the courts. They're going to do whatever it is they can to overturn any sort of privacy laws. Like, on the the, the arc of time does not bend towards justice, but towards fucking capitalism Monopoly. at this point. Yeah. Monopoly, yeah. imperialism, <laughs> might. Yeah. Unless we do something about it. What's, yeah, what, because what's mightier than these massive corporations is the mass of people. They can't outnumber us there. And eventually, maybe they'll get to the point where they can technologically outnumber us <laughs> and then we're screwed. But we... till then, we do have the capacity. You have that. It's the one we, thing we have. Yeah. If we can actually have <laughs> solidarity, if we can actually coordinate and make something happen together then we have a revolutionary potential that encouragingly, I think we still can tell that they fear like we've seen them back and down even from as, as, as polite comparatively, you know, non-revolutionary demands of, of unions in the U S like we've seen them Mm -hmm. back down to that. You know, we see the international community galvanizing behind too slowly i think but still Mm -hmm. starting to say hey israel you are really fucking palestine up like come on you know and i think we can tell that right now they still fear the masses Uh, so we still that means we still have a potential to fight back against them and win they haven't reached that critical mass where they're like no dude we don't have to fear this push the button we're good (laughs) you know i think What's interesting about like Zuboff's concluding chapters is that she, you know, obviously spends time wrapping everything up and saying, okay, yeah, this is basically how it works. And, you know, 
comparing surveillance capitalism to traditional capitalism, you know, whereas traditional capitalism is an invisible hand, like it's completely unpredictable. Surveillance capitalism is like, I'm going to make that predictable, right? Okay. <laughs> yes? I, I don't think that, well, I don't know. I didn't think that the invisible hand in the market was completely unpredictable. I thought it was just allocating resources in whatever way was most profitable. I mean, it was pretty predictable, like basically go where there's, where you can exploit the most. And But yeah. No, I think, I think that's fair. Uh, my understanding, and I maybe fucked this up because I don't read a lot of fucking capitalist theory. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this, uh, and this was like Adam Smith shit was the idea that like no individual can understand or direct mm. the forces of capitalism. The idea of like, that's why we have to have a free market. Cause it's so confusing. Right. He, yeah. Okay. Same thing. Yeah. Basically it's unpredictable on the individual level. He was saying no one person can compute it, you know, cyber sin Chile style. Cause he didn't have that sort of computer, but that, uh, the, the anarchy in production as Engels put it, works out accidentally to produce things because the losers get fucked over and the winners get the profit. Yes, that's the idea. In contrast, surveillance capitalism is is trying to make those markets visible and trying to gather mass amounts of knowledge to get unprecedented power. (laughs) Yeah. Another comparison, traditionally companies relied on employees and customers, and then we moved on to relying on shareholders and now, instead of, you know, one more step removed from, from customers, uh, surveillance capitalism doesn't need customers at all. You are now the raw material for advertisers. You know, they've, they've cut out the middleman. In a way. But what are advertisers actually trying to accomplish? I mean, advertisers are trying to get customers, for sure. But it, I guess it's like, they're not, they're not trying to sell you a service, necessarily. They're trying to sell someone else a service so they can sell you a service. Yeah, <laughs> I do think that that introduces another weakness to the capitalist economic system that basically makes it more susceptible to big collapses is it gets too caught up in not only just secondary, but tertiary like aspects of its economy of like yes. advertising and like everything Like who is else. it actually serving? Yeah. Like, okay. If your advertising sector is doing super great and raking in all the money, are they actually bringing in people to buy stuff? Like mm-hmm. if that doesn't happen, doesn't the machinery come clashing to a halt and we all have <laughs> a big, huge recession or something, you know? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Like what happens when your, you know, 5% metrics increase or whatever turns out to like not be that big of a deal. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Let's see. One comparison I did like a lot, though, was that industrial capitalism sought to dominate the natural world for resources and surveillance capitalism is trying to dominate human nature Mm, (laughs) for resources. I'm always a fan of a new front in capitalists like uh, Mm -hmm. exploitation. That's always an interesting conversation. Yeah. I mean, if you think about all the conversations we've had, they are scraping everything from where we are physically to our physical bodies and our fucking, you know, bloodstreams Mm -hmm. to, our emotions and you know psychological well-being they're scraping all of that information into ways to make money yeah they're constantly clawing for something (laughs) they're constantly (laughs) wishing we had another planet to drain i think you could say kind of within that we've we've started saying sort of cannibalizing ourselves as a species and saying well this group is not as cool so we're gonna you know devour them milk you know drain them of their life essence and 
you know, kind of just that's what imperialism is, just going place to place doing that. But, I mean, you're mm-hmm. right. Eventually they're going to run out and they're going to have to start saying, okay, well, you guys are going to be the automatons that we're going to, you know, just we're going to have you policing yourselves, policing your brains because we've put you into this like mental cage that we're going to constantly watch and ads and everything for. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yes. I mean, it, it is very much matrixy in that we are the resource. <laughs> yeah. I think if we were ever to do a communist movie night on the matrix, the big takeaway would be that we're actually the aliens or whatever, the ones that are holding them in the tubes. <laughs> oh, but that's yeah. the capitalists. <laughs> yep. Um, yeah. Like I said, I don't think Zuboff has any, you know, solutions for this I, I think she believes a little too much in democracy to solve this problem <laughs> i mean uh, we're not opposed but de- what type of democracy people's democracy she's more along the lines of legislation and jurisprudence so i don't think so yeah well she wants to let you have as much as the cops want to allow you to let you have but. <laughs> <laughs> i mean she she quotes like an edison quote of of capitalism being you know out of gear and and that it just oh. needs to be fixed yeah. and it's very plastic and i'm just like i don't just know tweak about that, that honey. a little bit that's fine yeah. <laughs> a couple little fixes here and there it'll be fine yeah i i found her kind of ending to be a little obviously too liberal for me in in the sense that i wasn't like i mean it just seemed like she was like yeah, there needs to be more democracy and, and a tie to public opinion and legislation and, you know, judicial movement. And which is weird because like earlier, like in an earlier chapter, she said, if there is to be a fight, let it be a fight over capitalism. Okay. That's like pretty good. Can yeah. we do that instead? <laughs> Perhaps she's quite taken by social democracy or something, you know, of like uh, not, you know, old school, cool social democracy, but like. Suck them, sort of type. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I maybe it is. Maybe that's what she's going for. Um, maybe you can't really call for riots and books or whatever. I haven't tried that yet, so I guess my agents will let me know, or my editor will. But um, <laughs> <laughs> I do agree with her overall goal in that these steps are important to deprogram us to the numbing effect that this can have, to the inevitability that it feels like, oh, this is just the way it is. And, you know, many, many times she emphasizes, like, this is not normal and we should be fucking pissed. You know, like, yeah. I absolutely agree with that. So overall, I give it a four star for the nastiness factor. Like, if you want some nasty stories, like, this is where to go. Mm-hmm. Very interesting in that sense. Um, but I'm not going to lie. I found it a big slog to read. Uh, it's very weighed down in academic terms and in just kind of repetitive writing that I just didn't vibe with. Um, maybe, maybe you will love it, but (laughs) (laughs) there's a lot of theory. She loves a vocab term. I left out a lot of that stuff because she did this really cutesy one where after she talked about 1984, she called, uh, surveillance capitalism, big other. And I was like, come on, you know, I don't have time for this because her, she mentioned like some scientists who, saw who believed in order to make good observations you had to necessarily view humans as other Mm. so that was her thing of like they see us as other and so it was a bad pun i didn't like it yeah it's not great (laughs) she falls in love with her own vocab too much i think that's that's one issue i have with all this publishers and stuff it's like academic writing you have to do that i think so too so i it just i think it is i think it's a really i think it's a good book and i think it's a pretty important book but i don't know if i would say it's like 
I think it needed another edition to be a little more palatable for the general population. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Honestly, there is, if you just want to read the first chapter, there is a list that says what is surveillance capitalism, and you can get pretty much the whole thing there. (laughs) So (laughs) The old intro trick. Mm -hmm. And that's available on our notes, too, for Patreon. So uh, it's at the very end, and it's called TLDR. So... (laughs) Um, if you just want to get the, the very basic theory of like, okay, what's going on? What are prediction products? Stuff like that. That's where you go. Any any final thoughts? No, that was a great, uh, great report. Thanks. Uh, thank you for slogging through. Next week, I think we're shooting the shit. Yeah. All right. I'll catch you then. Bye. Adios. Hey there, comrades. Just jumping in to remind you of all of our social media. We are on Twitter at Teach Communism, Instagram at Teach Me Communism. You can shoot us an email. That's teachmecommunism at gmail.com. Any of those places are good to send us an episode suggestion or a question, anything you think would be useful feedback for us or just your admiration. If you want to admire us in a public manner, and you should, you can go to Apple Podcasts to give us a review. It is the best way to help people find the show. Love when people write and review us. Please do both. We are also on YouTube if that's how you prefer to listen to podcasts, or if you know someone that's the only way they'll listen to podcasts, send them to our page. And we have a Patreon. For five bucks a month, you get access to our notes for each week's episode, including the backlog of notes, which is a very handy resource for up-and-coming commies. And at the end of the year, all of the funds from Patreon will be given to local mutual aid in the DFW area. So, ain't going to line our pockets. Finally, we have merch. Check us out at Public. You can find shirts and I believe also stickers and magnets and all kinds of fun stuff with catchphrases from the show or episode art, stuff like that. The link to that store is in the show notes, so check that out. Okay, that's all the internet. Join us next time for another episode of Teach Me Communism, where the class struggle is always in session. Bye, y'all.